0: Man, that was awesome to be a part of. I love seeing people commissioned from our own community to, to go and reach the lost. And, and as, we were, as we were doing that, um, I myself and Greg just shared with me as well um, that this is not just a commissioning for a vow, but it's an invitation to us that we would really examine what the Lord is calling us to. Uh, and in fact, today we're, we're talking about uh, something along those lines as well, what it looks like for us to serve. Um, Last week, Matt talked uh, to us in our, in our opening vision message about what we're looking toward this year, where we're going as a church. And uh, he looked at Ephesians 4 and he, he showed us how Ephesians 4 demonstrates how we grow in unity, in diversity, and in maturity together. Our unity is expressed by our one faith. It's expressed by the one spirit who dwells within us. It's expressed by our one calling to see God glorified, to see the gospel go forth, to see the kingdom proclaimed. But in order to, to accomplish that unified calling, we all have our own individual callings as well, the individual giftings that God has given us. Matt, Matt described how even in Ephesians 4, it shows how God gifted church leaders to be a prophet, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. He equipped many of us to be those as well. And that's to equip the saints for the works of other ministries that they're called to. That we would all be active, that we would all be serving. That while we're unified in our faith, we're unified in the spirit, we're unified in the calling of the gospel, we also have different expressions of that calling. And as we, as we act with one unified heart and purpose, as we act in those callings that we grow then in maturity together. The mature person, as Matt says, he said that they know their role. They know their gift. That's what Ephesians 4 shows us. They know their role, they know their gift. They know how they're going to serve the body. In fact, our theme verse for the year is Ephesians 4:16. It describes how when all three of these things come together, this is what happens. It says, "From Christ, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part." Today, I want to just unpack what that looks like. What, what does it mean for us to, to act as faithful servants? What's the condition that's in the heart of a servant that leads to long-lasting and fruitful and glor- God-glorifying service? Uh, this morning, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 17, 38-40. through 40. 1 Samuel 17, 38-40. Go ahead and turn there if you have your, your Bible. We'll throw it up here on the screen as well. Now, I know it's a little strange to go to an Old Testament passage to look at how we function as the church, but it's all one unified story, right? God has put things into uh, the Old Testament, into people of the faith throughout history that we can look at and learn from. At this point in the story, this is a very famous story. We're looking at David and Goliath, and the Philistines have come out against Israel, and they've put forward a challenge to Israel's best warrior, that whatever nation won, or whatever warrior won between the two nations, they would take the other nation captive. Uh, It's a little iffy to start with, but then uh, you add to it the problem that their their Philistine warrior, Goliath, was uh, essentially Shaquille O'Neal, but two feet taller and on steroids and having been trained in every form of battle since his youth. So not a great situation for the nation of Israel. Um, Needless to say, people were not volunteering for this role, so to speak. David had just come to the battlefield and his, his father had sent him to check on his brothers and to, uh, to see how they were doing to bring a report back. Uh, David was the youngest in his family and he was overlooked perhaps intentionally by his own family when Samuel came to anoint the next king of Israel. So uh, his, his own father, his own family didn't recognize his gifting. They didn't recognize who he was. But when David heard Goliath's blasphemy against the Lord, he went to Saul and convinced him to allow David to fight that battle. Somehow Saul agreed to this. I'm not really sure what was going on in Saul's mind, but somehow he agreed. And, and so he, he starts to try and equip David and get him ready for this battle. So that's where our passage starts for today. 1 Samuel 13, yep, not 13, 17, 38 through 40. Then Saul had his own military clothes put on David. He put a bronze helmet on David's head and had him put on armor. David strapped his sword over the military clothes and tried to walk, but he was not used to them. I can't walk in these, David said to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off. Instead, he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi and put them in the pouch in his shepherd's bag. Then with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. The question I have for you this morning is, what is in your hand? What is it that God has gifted you with that you can use for the good of the body and to reach the lost? Let's pray before we jump in. Father, we thank you for this community of believers that you have so faithfully led and guided and empowered throughout the years, the different expressions of ministry that we've had throughout the the decades, Lord, and we ask that, that in this season, Lord, we would know exactly what it is that we're called to, both as a church and as individuals fulfilling that calling and that role. God, I pray right now that you would illuminate as we speak today and as we go throughout this week in prayer, you would illuminate exactly what it is that you've put into each person's hand to be used for your glory and for the good of this congregation and for the lost. In Jesus' name, amen. David is one of my favorite Bible characters. I think that it's easy for us to look at David and see the the powerful great king of Israel. We see the one who led many armies into battle. We see the brilliant theologian who wrote hundreds of psalms. We don't know how many, but lots of psalms. But at this point in the story and throughout his life, I see a a different side of him as well. I see someone who is just a man. I see someone who is deeply flawed. We know of the stories of the things that David did that were not so great. But he was one who lived consistently with passion, with faith, with stepping out beyond what he felt he was able and one who, uh, who followed and trusted the Lord no matter what. See, David, remember, he didn't, he didn't know how history would remember him. All David knew was the thing that God was putting before him at the time. He had to make the daily choices like you and me to take up that mantle of responsibility that God had given him for the time. So I believe this, this passage and the surrounding uh, part of this passage teaches us four characteristics of a servant. First, the servant is faithful with little servant is faithful with little. Just one chapter earlier, remember Samuel comes to anoint the next king, goes to Jesse's house, and Jesse doesn't even call David in because he's so confident that it's one of his older brothers. See, up to this point, David's life was marked by obscurity. It was marked by seeming insignificance. Nobody thought about who David was. David was a shepherd. David was, was out attending the flocks every day. He was fighting off lions and wolves and bears and tigers, oh my, looking after every last one of the sheep. While David was tending the sheep, he was also though he was growing as a worshiper. He was consistently cultivating that inner life of worship and intimacy with the Lord. There's no there's no indicator here in these chapters that David was bitter about being overlooked, that he was just waiting for his chance. He was just being faithful with what was put in front of him and cultivating that lifestyle of worship. He knew that the only approval that really mattered was the approval of the Lord. He knew that being a shepherd was the task put before him for that season. So by the time David enters Saul's service, he's playing music for him in his court. The the difference between the character of Saul and the character of David becomes very apparent quickly. Saul was being tormented by an evil spirit and David would play music and the spirit would leave. Saul is cowering in fear away from Goliath. David is, is confident that the Lord is going to bring the victory. See, David had been faithful with the little things. He'd been faithful tending the sheep, with cultivating a lifestyle of worship, with being obedient to his father. So then when the larger task presented itself, David uh, was able to step into that role quickly. He was able to obey quickly. Saul had cultivated a love for himself, a love for his own image. And, and as a result, when the bigger challenge presented itself, he didn't have the internal structures to handle the weight of that pressure that was being put on him. But David had cultivated a love for God, for God's glory, so that when the challenge presented itself, he knew God was going to defend his own name. I think our culture today is really interesting because it's, it's a little bit different than probably anything we've ever seen in history because of the way the internet works and social media. Many cultures have been known as kind of an honor-shame culture. We've probably heard of an honor-shame culture or a guilt and fear culture, something like that, right? Where honor and shame are the two poles of success and failure, right? If, I, if I'm full of honor, if I honor my family, I'm, I succeed. If I bring shame on my family, then I fail. Well, somebody has, has proposed within the last decade that our culture has shifted to become a fame and obscurity culture, fame and obscurity. That if I'm famous, if I'm known, if I'm the best, if I'm the GOAT, if you know what that is, from you sports fans out there, uh, greatest of all time, if, if I'm that, then I'm successful, but if, I, but if I'm obscure, then I'm failing. Any of us can go onto YouTube, we can go onto Instagram, and we can find somebody who's better than us at what we do, they're more skilled than us, they're more well-known than us, Right? Kids can go onto YouTube and find a kid of the same age who's, a, who's already known by millions of people. There's a pressure that's being put on us by culture and maybe by ourselves to measure up to something uh, that is really almost impossible to attain. Uh, I know a place that this happens a lot is uh, with moms, right? You go onto Instagram, you moms, you go onto Instagram and you, uh, you see that if I'm not blogging every day, if I'm not posting a cute picture of my kids every day with the latest fashion, if I'm not uh, posting some kind of inspirational quote, and if I'm not affirming that every single moment of motherhood is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me, then I am failing. I am not a great mother. The wonderful thing, though, about the kingdom culture is that it flips that value of fame and obscurity on its head. It actually says that I can delight in my obscurity. I I don't need to have fully arrived right now. I can be faithful with little. Jesus makes it clear that in the kingdom economy, whoever is faithful with little little will be given more. And David understood this. He delighted in being great with the small thing. It was his his delight to be a shepherd for his family. It was a delight to, to serve his father. He knew that being a shepherd at the call of God was greater than being a king for his own glory. Within the body of Christ, there are so many roles, and many of them to us might look smaller and insignificant. They they might get less praise than other roles. But every role is so vital. I recently heard of a baseball player who broke his pinky toe and then didn't allow it to heal back properly, and he lost his whole career, his whole Major League Baseball career, because that one part of his body didn't heal back correctly. That seemingly tiny part of his body actually affected the rest of his game, his ability to pitch at a high level. There's no one member of this congregation that is insignificant. Let me take a minute. I just want to brag on one of the members of my own life group, Jake Ariano. He didn't know I was going to do this. He's embarrassed right now. I see it on his face. Uh, But when Jake first started attending Bethany Church, he was the only member in this whole church who didn't have a role to play before service, but he would come and sit in that chair every day 30 minutes before service would start and just wait for the service to start. Just be ready. He, he wanted to be engaged, he wanted to be involved, he wanted to participate. Week after week, uh, he would prepare lessons for our junior youth and lead discussions and, and got involved when that opportunity presented itself. He poured himself into the young people. Uh, then when Seth Niederer uh, moved overseas, there was a, a, a position, a couple hour a week position that opened up to come early a couple hours and clean uh, a couple key areas of the church, make sure things were set. So we were talking about it as an oversight team. I said, well, what about Jake? He's already here anyways. And they're like, yep, sure. So we offered him the job on the spot. He, he wasn't trying to get a position. He wasn't trying to get noticed. He, he didn't have any selfish ambition at all. In fact, when I walked in today, he was the one shoveling off the, the walkway coming into the church, of course. And, and I'm just like, man, you're everywhere serving all the time. And he wasn't trying to get something for himself, but he was just ready. He wanted to be engaged. He wanted to participate. He wanted to be useful in whatever way he could be. Love you, Jake. You're awesome, man. Another example of faithfulness that we all know and love is Harold Carlson, right? Harold uh, just passed away just a few weeks ago on New Year's Eve. And um, Harold never had the upfront role. Harold never had the the most visible, he was never the preacher, he was never the worship leader, and I don't think he wanted the upfront role. That wasn't something he desired, but each one of us can remember a time and many times when we saw his faithfulness and his consistency over and over. I was talking with Danny Lovestrand a few years ago, and, and he was just describing in his own discipleship process how Harold had an immeasurable impact on his life. Just watching him be faithful over and over every day. Helping him to to analyze how he was thinking about himself. And Harold was just there as a father to Danny. And Danny, I would consider you a father to many in our church now because of the result of Harold's faithful impact as well. Harold wasn't the preacher. He wasn't the worship leader. But he was definitely preaching. And he was definitely leading worship. He was a carpenter. He was a metal worker. I remember going down to the bottom of the barn one day, because I was getting ready for a, a student leader training, and it was like 5.30 or 6 in the morning, and I hear this, this bellowing melody coming out, and I'm, I walk into the bottom of the barn, and Harold's there by himself, no instruments, no people, and he's just singing hymns at the top of his lungs. Just loved worshiping the Lord, and loved serving people. The servant is faithful with little. The next characteristic of a servant That we see in this passage is that they're not afraid of their own insufficiency. They're not afraid of their own insufficiency. Look again at our passage. As soon as Saul agrees to allow David to fight Goliath, the first thing he does is tries to patch up David's insufficiencies. He tries to slap on as much armor and give him as much weaponry as he can to patch up those insufficiencies. But this wasn't David. By contrast, this is how David found his sufficiency. A few verses before our passage, he comes to Saul and says, I want to fight Goliath, and here's why. Okay, and this is what he says. Verse 34, Your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Wherever a lion or a bear came and carried off one of the flock, I went after it, I struck it down, and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And then David said this, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Even the things that David himself did, even the, 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 the victories that David had, he didn't attribute to himself. He saw the Lord's hand, the Lord's salvation in everything, bringing salvation, bringing the victory. See, while, while everybody else in the army and in the nation of Israel, was looking at Goliath and looking at himself, looking at Goliath, looking at themselves. He's big, I'm not. He's big, I'm not. They were look, David was the one who was looking at Goliath and looking to the Lord. Looking at Goliath, looking to the Lord. He's big, but he's not even worth comparing with him. I'm sure there are some in this room who see an opportunity to serve and don't want to step in for fear of failure for fear of looking stupid or doing the wrong thing, let me just totally put you at ease right now. You are absolutely going to fail. You are absolutely going to mess something up. And that's not only okay, that's actually encouraged. It's encouraged that you would step in and do something stupid and mess something up. Because it means that you're stepping out in faith beyond what you already believe yourself to be capable of. I'm not saying that we should just throw anybody into any role, obviously people are equipped for different things and and gifted in different ways, but we all have those areas that we can see, that we can recognize, need help, and that perhaps we should step into, or maybe we know we should step into, maybe we know the Lord's calling us to it, and and we're worried though that we wouldn't be seen as sufficient, that we would ruin it. When I first uh, began my role at the university on our campus here, I, I was in charge of worship ministry, worship teams. And so we were quite a bit smaller back then, so we would meet up in the, the prayer room next door. And in that room, uh, the drummer doesn't have a cage like this, he actually has an entire room, soundproof room built around him, right? I mean, you think they cage me here, you should see it over there. So, so there's, there's not a whole lot of sound that's coming out of that room. So I would serve as a drummer on a couple of the student worship teams because we were pretty small. And so the particular team that I was playing with that week, we. We had practiced a song and we agreed that the vocalist would start along with the drum cadence. So when we get to the performance or the, the worship time, I'm, I'm playing the drum cadence. The singer starts the song. Well, we had forgotten to give her the key that we were going to play the song in. So she started it in whatever key happened to come to her mind. Okay, So then we, the band comes in on verse 2 and it's a totally different key. Now I'm thinking in my mind, okay, this, this could be okay if the band would just Come back out, and we'll do the whole thing acapella, right? Just drums and vocals, just hear that it's not okay right now, and come out. Unfortunately, the worship leader didn't hear that there was a difference, or didn't know what the difference was, and so they didn't stop playing. And then the vocalists couldn't hear how to fix it in the middle of the song, so we played all five verses of It Is Well With My Soul in two separate keys. Let me tell you, as a new young leader who's trying to prove my ability to lead the worship culture and to do well in my role, and to, uh, and, and, and aside from that, being locked up in a drum room where nobody can hear my screams and my pleas to God that it would stop, it was not well with my soul. <laughs> my boss Dave and my coworker Ken were in the back kind of chuckling to themselves because what else can you really do in a situation like that? And Dave leaned over to Ken and he said, Derek is dying a 1,000 deaths right now. And he was absolutely right. I, I pretty much wanted to walk out of that drum cage and just quit my job that day. It was, it was one, I was like, I never want to experience failure like that again. And, and some of you are going to step into certain roles of leadership or of service, and, and you're going to face a situation that's challenging, that's new, that you don't know how to handle. And, uh, and you're probably going to fail at some point. And when you do fail... The rest of us will look at you and we will say, congratulations, you are human. Thank you for taking up this role. Thank you for stepping in. We need you in this position. Thank you for being willing to look foolish a little bit while you learn this role, right? We're going to be behind you as you step into that. As servants, our willingness to step out into the thing that God's calling us to is not based on our own sufficiency or insufficiency. God is the one who calls. God is the one who qualifies. God is the one who equips. The third characteristic that's revealed in our passage is that the servant is fixed on God's glory and on the good of his people. The servant is fixed on God's glory and the good of his people. Here's where I believe the biggest difference between Saul and David comes in. In 1 Samuel 15, when Saul disobeys the Lord, Samuel tells, uh, Samuel tells Saul that the kingdom's gonna be ripped from him that day. And Saul, instead of responding in repentance that he had mishandled God's glory, that he had disobeyed God, he says to Samuel, well, at least come back with me to the people of Israel that I wouldn't essentially lose face, that people won't think that there's too much wrong. Even when he's being confronted about his sin, he's thinking about himself. But then David, when, when he steps up to fight Goliath, his, his thoughts are not on himself, his thoughts are not on the fact that 2,000 years in the future, children will play with little flannel of him in every classroom everywhere. He's not thinking about the glory he's going to get from his own nation as a reward for this. He's thinking about the Lord. This is what he says in verse 45. When he comes up to Goliath, he says, You come against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defiled him. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today, I'll strike you down. I will remove your head and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God. And this whole assembly will know it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. David's motivation in stepping into this role, this terrifying challenge, was that God's name and God's glory would be vindicated, that God's glory would be seen among the opposing nation and his own nation, his own people. The heart of a servant is motivated by the fact that when we do our small part, when we step into the thing that God's calling us to, the whole body is built up, the whole body matures, and God receives the glory. And remember, when the, when the body matures, when, when the body is functioning the way it should, it says in Ephesians 3, That it is through that church that the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and authorities. That we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We are ruling with him. When we are functioning in maturity and who we're supposed to be, we have a massive impact on the kingdom of darkness and glorifying God's name in the earth. So in essence, when I take a small step of faith and serve my part within the body, I'm building up that body that rules with Christ. If you join a life group and you invest in one mentoring relationship, you find one person that you can pour into and meet with on a regular basis. Nobody else is going to see that, but you're building up the body of Christ. You're making the body mature. When, if you decide to greet at the front door, if you, if you decide to welcome people in in their first time and make sure they get connected to the right person, help them discover their, their ministry or their gift, you're building up the body. If you serve in children's ministry week after week for what might feel like a thankless job sometimes, You are investing in the next generation. You are building up the body. You are making it mature and bringing glory to God. The problem with this fame and obscurity culture that we live in that I talked about earlier is that it puts the focus on ourselves. It makes us think about how well known we are and what we can accomplish for ourselves or how well we measure up to that person in our field or the people in society. But in the church, we boast in our weakness. We rejoice in our obscurity because we know that no act goes unseen by the Lord. The woman remember who gives one penny gave but it was all she had. She gave more than the man who had everything and gave just a small percent. The little boy who's passing by with five loaves and two fish. He he was able to participate in one of the greatest miracles that we've ever seen or heard of that's still famous today, right? And bless thousands of people. But that little boy didn't do anything. His five loaves and two fish wasn't what mattered, right? But All he did was say yes to the Lord when he asked. He said yes to the master when he asked. All we need to do is say yes to the master when he asks us and trust that God's going to use the little that we can offer and glorify himself and bring good to his people. The last characteristic that we find in our passage is that the servant uses what's in his hand. The servant uses what's in his hand. Verse 40 tells us that David approached the Philistine with his staff and a sling in his hand. All he had was a staff and a sling. Now David had become very skillful with a staff and a sling. He had killed the lion and killed the bear. He, he, he knew how to use that. And in the pasture, tending a flock, a staff and a sling are vital tools. They're vital instruments. But on a battlefield, staff and a sling aren't going to do much. They don't really matter too much. When you're facing Shaq 2.0, whose breastplate weighs more than David's entire body, a staff and a sling isn't going to make too much of a difference. But if I was part of Israel's army, I would probably have said, we are toast. Why did we send this kid out there with, with a stick and a slingshot to go fight this trained warrior? But what David knew was that a stick and a sling in the hands of God is more powerful than all the weapons of military technology combined. He knew that God can take the small and insignificant. God can take the weak and the foolish. And he can use it to provide salvation. He can use it to take down obstacles. He can use it to bless and protect his people. You see, David knew that it wasn't about what he had in his hand. It was about the one who was going to use what was in his hand. You may wonder why it seems like you don't have the same level of gifting as this person or that person, or why you don't have the same opportunities or or. Any kind of objections we can think of. But remember in the parable of the talents, the one who had five and the one who had two received the same commendation from the Lord. It says, well done, my good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. But but the servant who had one talent, he had the same opportunity that the others did. Because it wasn't about how much he could produce, how much he had in the end. It was about how faithful he was with what he had. But he became focused, he diminished his gift, he became focused on, on not looking foolish, on not losing what he had. And so he didn't steward it, he didn't use it. When the, mass, the master was looking for faithfulness, he was looking for action. Even the campus that we sit on is, is, uh, was founded by a number of families that gave what they had in their hands. They used what they had for God's glory. They, they heard a vision, they heard a call, and they went for it. And, and what we see on our campus and around the world is a result of their faithfulness. Uh, Halvard Strand, who was, um, passed away just a couple of years ago, he was the last of the, of the founding members of Bethany who was alive. And, um, and so my dad talked to him in the last week of his life. And he said, Hey Halvard, do you have anything to share with us, any wisdom to give us? And he said, dig with the shovel that's in your hand and God will do the rest. Dig with the shovel that's in your hand and God will do the rest. It's not a complicated concept, but it is profound. That God uses the smallest thing that we have available to us and uses it if we say yes to him. And it's our responsibility to ask, what kind of tool is it that's in my hand? What kind of gift is it that's in my hand? And how can I use that for your glory, Lord? Another one of the founders of Bethany said, if God had given this vision to a bunch of theologians, they'd still be sitting around talking about it. But he gave it to a bunch of businessmen, so they went and did something about it. I think sometimes we just become too paralyzed We overanalyze what's going to happen, or I'm not good enough yet. There's something, yes, of course, to be said about counting the cost, making sure that you're ready to take on a challenge, but but we know the difference between that and not stepping out because we're not sure that we're going to be 100% successful, that we're not going to look foolish. As we look forward this year as a church to the things that we want to be focusing on, to expanding our local outreaches, just like we were praying about this morning, right? That not only vow, but that we would be joining vow in that mission. As we look forward to, uh, to building community through life groups and many other means, as we look forward to emphasizing discipleship among our youth, and, and even as we talked about earlier, you know, a few months ago, potentially planning churches out of this, we have to be a community that is all hands on deck. We have to be a community that is bought into the vision together. That is asking, what's in my hand and how can I use it to serve this body? So as, as we close, I want to invite up the worship team and also Doug Goodmanson. And, and, and one really practical way that we can look forward to how we can get involved is the, the volunteer engagement event that's coming up next week. I don't think that's the way that every single one of us is going to find our place, but many of you could get plugged into Valid Ministries through that. So Doug is just going to talk for a couple minutes about that. Then I'll pray and we'll head into worship together.